You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. Who invented the first pen? I have no idea. That's not how this game's supposed to go. You're supposed to at least just try to figure it out. Oh, I know. But usually there's something where I can put it in a time range or a period of history or a location or... Nothing. You got nothing? I've got nothing. Do you not use a pen? Only occasionally. You're a guy. You should be able to use a pen. Oh, shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out about that in a minute. I'm firing the shots because of today's episode. Exactly. Yes. Well, 200 BC, the Egyptians had a reed pen. And then 680, there was a quail pen, also by the Egyptians. 1822, the first steel point pen was designed at mass production by John Mitchell in Birmingham, England. Mm. I want to say that that's maybe the mass production start of pens. Nice. And currently, the U.S. produces 2 billion pens per year. Sheesh. (laughs) That's a lot of handwriting, even still today with computers and phones and everything else. My guess is it's driven primarily by school. Yeah, it must be on the decline, though, because to your point, from a digital standpoint, I don't ever use a pen anymore. Do you? Very rarely. Yeah. Usually it's only for like sketching. I'll use pencils and pens. Yeah. So we're recording this on Friday. What are you guys up to this weekend? Just hanging low. You had a pinhole leak in your house. So you just... (laughs) (laughs) You guys are living the dream over there in the pandemic. Oh, man. Yes. 2020. It's just beautiful. (laughs) This weekend is primarily just trying to navigate around the house because... Canoes? Yes, exactly. We're floating around in canoes. The bottom level of our house is just kind of like completely ripped up because of this pinhole leak that we had. And so all of that has to get repaired. All of the wet stuff had to get ripped out and dry it out. And then you put the fresh stuff back in, repaint and refloor and all that kind of stuff. So the repairs start in earnest on Monday. Mm. So we have a few more days of kind of hobbling around on subfloor and (laughs) horrible trying to navigate that. So kind of weird, but yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. We'll get some rest and relaxation in. The weather's supposed to be nice. So that'll be good. How about you guys? I rented a jet ski for tomorrow morning to take Emerson's little boy out. Ooh, just in the marina. Nothing crazy because he's turning six in three weeks time. So he's not old enough yet to like throw him off the thing. No, he can swim though. His little sister that's four can't swim. She can, but she's a little bit suspect. So we're not doing it with her yet. I'm just trying to find things to do with him that's safe, safe in the sense of virus safe and just outside of the house. We just need to yeah, try to get out of the house a little bit. It's starting to get a little bit of a cabin fever circumstance and school starting in two weeks time with him. It's going to be all virtual. So he's going to the big school, kindergarten, in Zoom. It's kind of sad if you think about it. <laughs> it is. It's very weird. Yeah, Chanel, it's the same thing. Her first experience with school is going to be remote learning, distance learning. It is weird. Yeah, his school issued him a Chromebook at the whopping age of five. They said, here you go. Welcome to the district. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be ready to go. Ugh. A lot of ABC mouse and That's crazy. prodigy and all the little distance learning things. Yeah, but we, you know, we're fortunate <laughs> that we at least have that. So yes. Anyway, let's get started. So today's going to be an interesting episode on the show. We talk about brand failures and rescues and the ups and downs and how brands market themselves. 
And sometimes it's really big, flashy brands making massive mistakes like American Airlines or like Nokia. And sometimes it's big and small brands coming back from a brink of extinction. Think of like Lego or Campbell's or PBR. Yeah, but one of the things that these stories tell us is that a brand itself doesn't have to be exciting or dramatic to get into trouble with marketing missteps, right? We see it across the board. You can be a big brand, little brand, established company, brand new. It doesn't really matter. And so it's just, do you do the things that prevent these things from happening? Do you do the things that fix these things when they take place? For instance, let's take the calm, predictable, one would think, world of pens, (laughs) like Writing pens, right? Common, predictable. You're right. When you think of like great marketing failure stories, pens then jump in mind. Right. I mean, the worst thing that I think about pens is like when people chew on them and then they're walking around with these pens that have like spit and chew marks on them. And then they like hand you the pen to write with. And you're like, I don't don't want (laughs) No, thanks, man. So yeah, I mean, pens, they work or they don't. They write on a piece of paper, right? And aside from... People buying incredibly expensive stuff, the calligraphy pens or the really fancy Mont Blanc or cross pens. Usually I have my favorite types of pens, but it's not that big of a deal. I kind of just grab what's there, right? So there's a lot of different types of pens, ballpoints, rollerballs, felt tips. You can choose your color. You can choose your size, right? Wow, you know a lot about pens. I'm impressed. (laughs) This is very exciting stuff. Yeah. So how controversial can marketing pens be? Well, pretty controversial. In 2011, big pens found out how controversial it could be. (laughs) So let's go back in time a little bit and look at the history of big pen first. Often brands will try to do something new and exciting to differentiate themselves. And maybe just as often that turns out really badly for them. And that's kind of like what happened with Bic and this story that we can unpack today. In 1944, near the end of World War II, French entrepreneur Marcel Bic, which I think we'll just refer to as Marcel Bic at this point, he bought a factory in the suburb of south of Paris and he started the company that would become Société Bic. And Bic Pens was introduced in December of 1950. 50, and introduced in the American market in 1959. Originally priced at 29 cents, basically the equivalent of 254 in today's dollars. The company's slogan was right first time, every time. And there's actually an ad that played when I grew up in South Africa that I tried to look for, but I couldn't find it. And it was a clown in a circus that would have two pens in his hands. And then he would do a handstand on the two big pens right? And then everybody would clap for him. And then a little boy would give him the program to sign and use that pen to sign his name. Ah. And then it would like have the slogan, right first time, every time. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. This is like in the eighties. So when I think of big pens, I think of that ad. The inexpensive big ballpoint pen with the transparent body known elsewhere in the world as the big crystal is the best selling pen in the world today. Ooh, wow. Yeah, and in 1961, Bic introduced the Bic Orange Pen, featuring a fine 0.8 millimeter point and an orange barrel instead of the translucent crystal. And in 1965, the French Ministry of Education approved the Bic Crystal for use in all French classrooms. 
In 2006, Bic sold its 100 billionth pen. Wow, it's a lot of pens. Yes, it absolutely is. And it's become so much a part of just the fabric of modern culture in general that MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, has made it a permanent part of its collection. They actually have an exhibit about Bic pens. And Bic pens come in six-point sizes, more than 18 colors, so there's a lot of options. Marcel Bic was always a very strong believer in advertising, and in 1952, he hired poster designer Raymond Savignac to create ads for him, and subsequently won the French Oscar for Publicity Award for Excellence in Advertising. Oh, wow. And in 1953, ad executive Pierre Guigenet advised Bic to shorten his family name to BIC, so the brand name would be memorable and would translate globally because previously it was B-I-C-H. And I could see why he did that because if you just read it in modern English, it could come off as offensive. So it's good that they changed it to Big. Yes. Anyway, early Big ads referred to the Big Crystal as the atomic pen. And the ballpoint really drove the shift from fountain pens to ballpoint pens in the late 20th century. So fast forward 60 years, and in 2011, Mm -hmm. Bic decides to launch a product line specifically targeted for women. There we go. Now it's starting to get into the nitty gritty. Something is about to happen, I have a feeling. And they call it Bic for her. The campaign attempts to speak to individual expressions, restyling existing pens, largely in pastel colors, pinks and purples, and with packaging and ads that touts, quote, Bic for her, always the perfect accessory, end quote. Campaign materials highlighted, quote, Bic for her pens and pencils allow you to add a touch of personality and pop of color to your day with beautifully smooth writing and bold, trendy designs. So the pens were described in the product descriptions as being, quote, designed to fit comfortably in a woman's hand with an attractive barrel design available in pink and purple. That's horrible. Yeah. And for nearly a year, the campaign went largely unnoticed. Then a writer of the online magazine, Jezebel, picked up on it and basically unleashed the kind of whooping that we are known to get on the internet for doing really dumb things. <laughs> Jezebel's masthead tagline is, quote, a supposedly feminist website. And their snarky take on feminism found a perfect target in Bic. The article titled Bic for Her, finally a pen that ladies can use, included pearls like this, quote, oh, thanks the heavens above, my feeble female hands were just a struggling with those bulky men pens. Or (laughs) thankfully, Big has listened to our many complaint letters, which of course we dictated to men. Or it seems that pens only come from black and white ink, but hopefully Big will release a version that also writes in pink and makes the hearts above our eyes look so much better. So people just really responded really badly to this. I don't really blame them. It's horrible. Super, super sexist. (laughs) Yeah. So reviewers on Amazon have this like field day, right? And Amazon reviews can get pretty amazing. Like, have you ever spent time looking through the reviews for Haribo gummy bears? No. Oh, 
Take 30 minutes. Trust me, this is like the most amazing thing you'll do over the weekend. Go through and read some of the reviews for Haribo gummy bears. And it is just absolute comedy gold. It's like so amazing. And they got that kind of satirical comedy treatment with the Amazon reviews as well. So here's just a sampling of some of the better ones. Here's the first one. Since I've been using these pens, men have found me more attractive and approachable. Stop, stop, stop. Can you do it in your female voice, please? (laughs) Uh, I'm not even going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, Chad. Yes. (laughs) So, since I've begun using these pens, men have found me more attractive and approachable. It has given me soft skin and manageable (laughs) hair, and it has really given me the self-esteem I needed to start a book club and flirt with the bag boy at my local market. (laughs) And another one. Those smart men in marketing have come up with a pin that my lady parts can really identify with. Oh, man. (laughs) Here's another one. The delicate shape and pretty pastel colors make it perfect for writing recipe cards. Checks to my psychologist. I'm seeing him for a case of the hysterics. And tracking my monthly cycle. Ask your husband for some extra pocket money so you can buy one today. (laughs) And one that I thought was hilarious. This is a one-star review, and it says, Total scam. After several hours of staring at these pens, I gave up. They didn't write anything. The next day, I asked the ladies in my book club to help me out. Since none of us can read, our book club is more of a martini club. Anyway, I presented these pins to the other ladies, and again, several hours and several martinis later, the pins still hadn't written anything. If you're going to advertise something as for her, I shouldn't have to experience such confusion. Maybe you should provide a man pin in the package so it can tell the woman pin what to do. One of the reviews had a simple title, these pins don't work for math. Ugh. Another reviewer lamented that although the pen seemed great, she was unable to open a stubborn package. Mm. Among the approaches she unsuccessfully tried were stamping on it with her stiletto, melting the plastic with a curling <laughs> iron, loosening it with baking grease, uh. shaking it while crying uncontrollably. Oh. Oi, that's not what you want your brand to be associated with. Yes, this is just super great publicity. And perhaps most visibly... And not only that, it's super great publicity by your target audience that you're trying to hit with this. Right. These aren't men writing these things. These are women writing them, which they specifically (laughs) were targeting with their new pink pens. Right. So we always talk about like... Does the messaging resonate? Will it resonate with mm-hmm. our target audience? And this resonated, <laughs> just not the way they wanted it to. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps most visibly, comedian and TV talk show host Ellen DeGeneres picks it up and picks it apart. So let's listen to that real quick. I thought that women, we've, we've made a lot of progress towards equality. And we're, we're allowed to vote, and I think since 1982 now. And... <laughs> We can wear pants, we can drive at night, all those things have happened. And then I saw something that makes me think we still have a little bit of uh, ways to go. It's a new product from Bic, the pen company, and they have a new line of pens called Bic for Her. And this is totally real. They're pens just for ladies. I know what you're thinking, it's about damn time. Where have our pens been? Can you believe this? We've been using man pens all these years. 
Yeah. And they come in both lady colors, pink and purple. And they're just like regular pens, except they're pink, so they cost twice as much. That is absolutely true as well. The worst part is they don't come with any instructions. So like, how do they expect us to learn how to write with them, you know? I was reading the back of the pack. Well, I had a man read the back of the package <laughs> to me. And it said it's designed to fit a woman's hand. This is all true. I'm not making any of this up. <laughs> that's good stuff. Uh, that's really good. And it's often the case with brands making huge missteps like this. There's always a chorus of voices crying out, how can this be happening? Right? We always see that. <laughs> what happened? How is this even possible? Well, one writer for Forbes magazine gave his perspective in an article titled, Big For Her, What Were They Thinking, as told by a man who worked on tampons. Now, aside from the troubling fact that an article amounts to further mansplaining with David Benjaniri explaining to us all how this could happen, including lines like, I'm uniquely qualified to comment on this as a former brand manager worked on feminine hygiene products. But he does couch his comments as having been, quote, personally responsible for some awful, painful advertising. And Vincent Murray writes that the problem is not the ratio of women to men in the boardroom necessarily, but that it's what happens when you try to build your brand by looking at it through the lens of data rather than from the perspective of your consumer. So in other words, he says this could have been avoided if Bic had run the campaign past even a handful of target consumers. And both men and women can get caught up in a data spiral where common sense just kind of like goes out the window because data tells you this is a good idea to launch a brand targeted specifically for women. And then you don't look at the finer nuances of how you're communicating that and just think, oh, the data says this is a good idea, so we should do it. And you end up with the kind of things that we ended up with here. Mara Jitkis of the Washington Post pointed out if big pens had put the same pens out there and not named them for her, then none of this would have happened. And that the mistake was not trying to make something for women, but basically pandering them through the marketing campaign is what set all of this off. And again, you can just avoid this by simply just asking your consumer to review this through some sort of a panel before you push this out and create the havoc that they did. It's kind of interesting that there hasn't been really like from a sales perspective, a dip. The pens still actually sold very well. And I think we're the fourth highest sellers for a number of years within Bic's portfolio. So they did see this big backlash, but they also got a lot of press coverage from it. And they also ended up still selling pretty well until they were discontinued in 2016. And in fact, according to a story in the Sydney Morning Herald by Christine Hauser and Christina Anderson, the makers of the Bic for Her pen said in a statement, when we launched it, we received positive feedback from consumers. We recognize it has elicited strong reactions since then. We value all the comments we receive, including critical ones, and we regret any offense that may have been caused. So how do you make sure your brand doesn't accidentally be sexist, racist, unintentionally offensive? And we've talked about in previous episodes about the importance of 
having representation of your target audience within your agency makeup and your client side makeup for your staff. But making sure your company is as diverse as your target audience is important. Hiring women, hiring people of color, hiring other minorities is important. But there are also some pragmatic things that you need to do in order to make sure that you catch these things. Because even people who are inside that target audience, they can still have blind spots and they can still not catch on to certain things, especially if they're maybe a little bit more subtle that other people will catch on to. And so you need to really pressure test it. So it's really easy to get caught in a vacuum or a cycle of confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is a psychological principle that basically says that we tend to gravitate towards information that confirms what we already believe. So as an advertiser, if I think that an ad sounds good based on the data that I have in front of me, I'm going to tend to gravitate towards the feedback that confirms that rather than the feedback that denies that. So in psychology today, in talking about confirmation bias, it says that confirmation bias occurs from the direct influence of desire on beliefs. When people would like a certain idea or concept to be true, they end up believing it to be true. And this error leads the individual to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the views or prejudices one would like to be true. Man, it sounds like you're talking about our whole political system right now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, right? Where the facts could become slightly tainted or misrepresented. Yeah, exactly. We talk past each other because we form our opinion. Mm -hmm. And once we have that opinion, we only want to look at information. It's why people unfriend people on Facebook that they don't agree with, because you only want to look at information that confirms your worldview, your beliefs, the way that you see things. So we embrace information that confirms that while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on that. And so that's why as we're developing ads, it's really important to put processes in place to actively combat confirmation bias in the ad development process. And that includes when you're in the target audience. So some things that you can do to improve that in your process are, number one, make message testing a standard part of your creative process every time. Like that just needs to be part of the process, not something that you only do for your really biggest launches. And you can come up with a list of potential objections. And what's important to do with this is not to limit them to what you think is logical, because the whole point is that you might have blind spots, even if you fall within the target audience. And so you want to build questions around those potential objections in your message testing research and ask for additional potential objections, gut reactions and things that the testers might see as problematic. Make it clear you want them to not hold back and then also make sure that you address how people think about what you're exposing them to, what they feel when they experience it and what it makes them want to do. And then be willing to dive deeper into any potential warning signs, even if they might seem like outliers. It's okay to go back and do another round of research 
to dig in deeper to anything that comes up that you think, oh, you know, maybe this isn't that big of a deal, but one or two people mentioned this in a panel of 11 people or 15 people or 25 people, that one outlier could be mentioning something that is really important that if the rest of the group maybe had a little bit more exposure to or kind of thought of, they might think differently of that. So it can really help you uncover any potential issues. And those are processes. Those are things that's got to be in place to do messaging testing. And even that can be abused. And what I mean by that is this was clearly created by two women and they say that they had the best intention in mind, but it still slipped through. And I think that happens when you don't necessarily take the smaller, softer things in consideration. When you do your audience testing and you look at the results, you need to basically create a culture where the quietest voice can be heard. So we often see that organizations do these things, but the end results or the output is not where it should be because you've perhaps got strong personalities in the room that create an environment where the softer voices don't feel that they can speak up. And we don't know if this has happened here, but we have seen that happen in the past. If you've ever read the book about the holarchy management philosophy, which is something that we ran in our agency for many years, Brian Robertson, the author, talks about trying to make sure that the low voltage light can never be ignored. So even though you might have a process in place to do your artist testing and your messaging testing, you've got to make sure that everybody's involved has a voice that they not only can speak up with, but they feel they're entitled to do that. They're not going to get shut down. And how are you doing that in your company? You know, make sure that the voices of these least likely to speak out, the quiet voices are the ones that you really listen to, because very often those are the ones that you ignore. And those are the ones, because you ignore them, that create something like this. So yes, it's super important to have a process in place to do this, but also the way you conduct that process is also important. And point in case, I mean, they did the same thing four years later. There's an ad <laughs> or a Facebook yeah. campaign that we found, we'll throw it in the show notes, that is actually ran in South Africa. It's a picture of a business-like lady standing with her arms crossed. And the headline reads, look like a girl, act like a lady, think like a man, work like a boss. And I don't have to go into the outlash that they receive from that. <laughs> but I mean, this just shows you like four years later, after this whole debacle we just went through, they ran that campaign in a different country. So something somewhere is not right, right? It's the fact that this keeps on slipping through and is offending people is a problem. Yeah. And I think you've hit the nail on the head because even back in 2012. Hit the nail on the pen. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, even back in 2012, when all of the backlash around the Bic for Her pens was boiling over, that very same month, Bic was facing problems for having to pull another ad that they had ran. It was a TV spot that was very, what many people called insensitive and offensive to the Asian community. You can use the word offensive. I think that would qualify as it. Yes. In fact, so Linda Kwong, a spokesperson for the brand, said consumers found the ad racist. She shared one email with marketingmag.ca that summarizes the complaints. Quote, 
I found this commercial to be absolutely distasteful, the email reads. Given the propensity of death penalties in some Asian countries, the idea that Bic would use this theme as a joke is outrageous. I encourage you to immediately cancel the airing of this commercial. We'll throw that ad in the show notes and you guys can tell us if you find that offensive. I did. I thought it was super offensive. And what's even more, in the press release afterwards, them talking about it, they blamed the agency for not pulling it down quick enough. They literally threw the agency in front of the bus saying it's their fault for not pulling it down. And nowhere in the press release did they talk about they're sorry and this is what happened. So there's clearly something wrong somewhere. The fact that they have done this over a decade in three different continents, in three different campaigns, shows you that they need to look within and try to fix this a little bit. Exactly. At the end of the day, it's about taking accountability over the process. It's like whack-a-mole. Right. In advertising, we shouldn't be playing whack-a-mole with all of the ads that need to be pulled and that are going wrong and are causing outrage. Whack-a-mole is not a game. (laughs) That's part of advertising. So anytime we have situations like that, it's time to look inward and think about how we solve that at a more systemic level. Right. And I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap up the episode. Cool. Thanks for listening, guys. Speak to you next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.